You know, I was thinking uh, as they were ending that song, everybody just do this. You know, that's a gift of God. The next breath you take is a gift of God. God doesn't have to give you the next breath. Now, I'm hoping he'll give you several of you the breath and for the next few minutes, but each breath we take is a gift. We're responsible for our life. We're responsible for what we do with the breath that he gives us. And so uh, I was just thinking about that as they were singing that wonderful song and thinking and reflecting on it. What time is it? Well, some of you are saying it's 10 minutes after 11. Some are saying it's 30 minutes before we leave. <laughs> but I'm not talking about time like this. What time is it? It's interesting if you'll be finding the book of Ecclesiastes, what the Bible says to us about time. Book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're having trouble finding it, just open your Bible. If it falls open in the middle, it'll fall open in Psalms. Turn right through Proverbs, and the next book is Ecclesiastes. If you go to the Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. Back up. It's kind of tucked away in there. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. I'm not a Bible scholar, but it's the only book I know that's in the Old Testament but a Greek word is used to describe the title of it, Ecclesiastes. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly, a group. The church is an ekklesia, a grouping of people. Here it's the noun form. It's, it's in a particular tense. And, and what it does, it's speaking of the one who's addressing the assembly, the speaker who's speaking. In fact, if you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, you, you hear the title described in the opening verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, right there you, you hear the word, the one who's speaking to the ecclesia, to the group, uh, most conservative Bible scholars believe is Solomon. Now some of these later scholars uh, want to say that it can't be Solomon because of the language, the verbiage that's used that it's later than that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Whether, whether Solomon wrote it or Solomon is the subject of it and somebody else wrote it about him, it's about Solomon. It's about King Solomon. Uh, we see it there, and you also see it down in verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so uh, no matter which way you want to go at it, what the book is about is about the, the preacher, the teacher, is speaking to a group of people. And he's speaking to a group of people about his life. He's speaking to them about who he is and what he's done. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is not a poem like Proverbs, but it is poetic. And because of that, some of the language is somewhat figurative. And so you have to kind of read between the lines with regard to it. And the other thing about the book of Ecclesiastes it, it is somewhat dark and pessimistic. In fact, there's a futility to, to, to Ecclesiastes if you don't know the rest of the story, if you don't understand all of it. And so because of that, some folks just don't want to read the, the, the book. Some folks don't want to preach out of the book. They say it really doesn't have much to say to us today. I think it has volumes to say to us today. 
Because while it is dark, while it is pessimistic in a sense, to me it makes perfect sense. It shows what a life is like that's dark and futile without the Lord Jesus Christ, without God intervening in that life. And so what Solomon is doing, and Solomon's an old man when he writes this, he's recapping his life, he's looking back over his life, and he's trying to help us to understand this struggle that he's been in. The preacher is speaking to us out of his experiences of life, out of being who he is. After all, he's the wisest man who's ever lived. God gifted him with that. And then alongside that, God gave him some life experiences that very few people will ever have. So don't you think we can learn something from listening and, and encountering the words of the preacher, the, the ones who are speaking to us today in a time and a place that we desperately need a word from God? Solomon is the author. Solomon. Who's Solomon? Well, he is the king, but he's David and Bathsheba's second child. You remember the story. I don't have time this morning to rehash it, but do you remember how David, who was king, saw this beautiful woman and decided he wanted her? Well, she was married. Uh, he take care of that. He's the commander-in-chief, and so he puts Uriah the Hittite, who was her or her husband at the point of the spear in a battle and then pulled the troops back and he was killed. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, he killed a man and he committed adultery. That's the start of their relationship. There was a child born to that illicit affair. That child died, part of the judgment of God. This is the second child that's born, Solomon. Now, just think with me just a moment. Coming out of that as a background to your family, this is who mom and dad are. This is how I came to be. This is how they came to be. Can you think of all the rumors that went on, all the talk that went on? But at the same time, he's the king's kid. He had privileges that no one else had. He got to experience things that very few people would ever experience. Growing up in the kingdom with the king, growing up the heir apparent to the throne, can you think of all the things that happened in his life, good and bad, that fashioned who he was, that began to shape and form his life? We look at his life and we say, oh, how sorry. But we don't go back and, and really look at what took place prior to. Most folks today that go through difficult times, if we're not careful, we look at their life. We don't understand what has fashioned their life, what has brought them to that point. So is there any wonder that his life is a little skewed to one side or the other? Is it any wonder he's going through life trying to find hope and happiness in his life and finding it not? Is there any wonder? Well, of course not. He says here that his life is empty. There's nothing to his life. In, in fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 that I read just a moment ago, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Israel, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, saith him. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that word vanity, that's kind of King James language. That's kind of poetic language. Let me, let me translate it to you in today's word. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. 
All of life is utter meaningless. Vanity, vapor, it, it's nothing. Vanity, vanity. My life is vanity, vanity. It means my life is just like vapor. It's just, there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. This is what he says of his life as he looks back over his life. And he looks back over his life and describes that emptiness that he had. He had tried everything, and the, the, the language here is under the sun. Under the sun. Again, poetic language to say everything this world has to offer under the sun, I've tried it. To try to find some place of satisfaction in my life. Uh, what did he try? We don't have time this morning to go all the way through it, but it'd be a good study for you. He tried wisdom. He was the wisest man who ever lived, so he sat around with the philosophers for part of a day, philosophizing. For me, that would be vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I mean, just talking about the hypothetical, what if, what must be, just blah, 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 you know, just seeking wisdom, seeking a deeper understanding of understanding of understanding of understanding. No practical application to it, just understanding the mystical things of the universe. I've been around some of those folks. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I mean, they just are somewhere else. And they hardly ever put their feet down on planet earth and deal with the practicality of today, much less tomorrow. Wisdom, he tried wisdom, he tried pleasure. You read here, it says that everything he looked at and wanted, he had. Can you imagine? You walk through life and you see something, you say, I like that, I want it. Oh, look at that, I want that too. In fact, I want three of those in case two of them break down. All of his life, whatever brought him pleasure, he indulged in it. His mind was wrapped up in wisdom and philosophy. His body was wrapped up in pleasure, trying to find hope and help to satisfy what was inside by doing something to the outside. Alcohol. He tried alcohol. And ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing good about alcohol. Period. I thought I'd just put that out there so if you wondered where I stood on that subject matter. <laughs> he tried alcohol. He tried drowning his sorrows, numbing himself for the next two hours, and all he did is wake up with a hangover and the problems are still there. He tried alcohol. He tried human achievement. I'm sure he looked at the kingdom and all that he had built and all that he was, and as he looked around, he said, boy, look at me. Look what I have done. He, he based his whole life on trying to find happiness in things that he had done, things that he had touched, things that somehow he had been a part of. He tried the fruits of his riches. With the place that he was in his life, I'm sure there were benefits from being the king. Things he didn't even seek that came his way. Things that were brought to him that he had no way of knowing and controlling. And emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. All is emptiness. He tried sex. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Amen, somebody said. Amen. I know what some of you men are thinking. Oh, ha, 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 ha. 700 wives, that means he had 700 mother-in-laws too. <laughs> he 
He tried all of these things. And he concludes that his life was characterized by emptiness. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The recap of his life is helpful to us. Because ladies and gentlemen, is he not like us? Yes, he is. Now, I pray there is someone here this morning, you haven't tried all of these things. But I guarantee you, most of us have tried some of these things in life to try to make sense of the emptiness that we feel in life. And so he's speaking to me. Brother Owens, what on that list have you tried? None of your business. What have you tried? You would say, none of your business. We're human. And there are times in all of our lives that are dark and futile. There are times in all of our life when we've tried to make sense of things apart from understanding that God is God and we are not. And so, he speaks to us. Oh, he's the king. He had opportunities we don't have. And here he uses a teaching method that I think is most helpful to us. Because to explain his life and explain this futile attempt that he had at life at trying to find this or that, he uses polar opposites to describe his life. He goes to the extreme one way and the extreme the other way to explain the whole panorama of his life. And by talking about the streams, we get a, the extremes, we get a picture of all of it. And so this method is a great, great method, a great method of understanding how God does things in our life. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 is my text, down through verse 3. Let me read it and you follow along. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, literally the verse says a time to give birth, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. You see the extremes? He says, first of all, there's a season a season. And the word that's used there means a broad season, a broad time. It's kind of like we would say a season of the year. It's not an instant. It's three months, four months. It's a, it's a, it's a broad period of time. Summer, winter, fall, spring, those broad times. He said there's a season, but there's also a time. And the word that's used there means the right time, a precise time, the exact time. So he says God has the big picture, the, the time, and the exact time for everything under heaven. And he says here that there's a purpose. The purpose, of course, is God's purpose because he uses the term under heaven. When he's speaking of what he has done to try to find hope in his life, he says under the sun. But when he speaks of what God can do, he speaks of under heaven, under the heaven. Literally, there's a definite article, under the heaven. And so God's perspective is much broader than our perspective. Our perspective is what we get up this morning under the sun and we looked around to see what's going on here. God's perspective is eternal. God's perspective is everything under the heaven. Everything. And so as he puts this as a stationary object lesson for us, he then begins to delineate these broad polar opposites to help us to understand life. Are you ready? 
Let's go. Number one, he says there's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to be born, here's one opposite, and a time to die. And by that, he's talking about all of life. A time to be born. We love that, don't we? That we celebrate it every year when I was born. I was born February the 4th. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. Every year we celebrate up until we get to be 70. <laughs> I will not be having a birthday next year. At some point, we just, just another day. We just don't talk much about it. But we celebrate births, don't we? We have baby showers. Oh, could you, could you, could you? Oh, look how the, the bird. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. Time to die. Brother Owens, let's just go on to something else. We don't like to talk about that, do we? But just as there is an appointed time to be born, there's an appointed time to die. There's a great statistic. One out of one die. It is the one thing all of us will faith, yet it is the one thing that, generally speaking, people will not talk about, won't even think about, and certainly won't make preparation for but, you know, we believe it. I was talking with someone the other day, and I hadn't seen them in a while. And as we were talking, they said, Brother, Brother Glenn, hadn't seen you in a while. I said, since the last time you and I talked, Mother died. I said, oh, I did not know that. They said, yeah, she died. And I said, how old was she? He said she was 95. And before I could say it, he said she had a great, long, wonderful life. The appointed time. Just like we accept being born, we accept dying if it fits our schedule. 95 years old, oh, wonderful, long, long life. What we have a problem with is when, a, God forbid, a 12-year-old dies or a 20-year-old dies because it's too soon. It's too soon. Now, that's from our perspective. If they're a child of God, guess what? They just got a head start on eternity. We miss them here, and, we, and there's a reason for that. I mean, that, that's our, our part of it. But on the other side, they're with the Lord. They're with Him. So, you know, what, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They, they just got 12 years. He's got 12 years on us on eternity. I mean, he's just he's enjoying that. But we miss it. But my point is this. A time to be born and a time to die. We believe that. We don't acknowledge the last part of it as much as we do the first part, but we believe that. Solomon's right. And we even acknowledge there is a time for each of those. And then he says there's a time to plant, a time to pluck up. New American Standard says to uproot. Now, if you read closely, you'll see that the meaning of this is to uproot that which is planted. It says it right there. Understand in biblical times, much of the society was an agrarian society. They didn't have Publix and Winn-Dixie. They grew their own food. Uh, they didn't go to the store to get their, what they were going to eat. And so this would speak right into who people were. Now, today, most of you are not farmers, I would suspect, but a lot of you have gardens. And whether you have a garden or you're a former farmer or you're a current farmer, all of us understand there's a time to plant there's a time to harvest, and then there's a time to turn over the soil 
For what? To plant again. And part of turning over that soil is to prepare the soil for the next crop. There's a cycle involved. And ladies and gentlemen, all of life is a cycle. There are going to be times in your life when you're up here. Other times in your life down here. And let me just tell you, if you're down here, get ready. You're going to be up here. <laughs> and let me warn you, if you're up here, there's coming a time for you to be down here. It's a part of life. It's a part of what we all experience. It's just a part of living in the society, a fallen society that we live in. In heaven, there's not going to be any cycles. It's going to all be up here. In fact, it's up here. Up here. It's all going to be good. But here in this society, uh, it, it, it cycles. Everything cycles. And so here he's showing this time. There's an appointed time to plant. There's an appointed time to pluck up, to to tear up, to turn over that which has been planted. And then he goes on to another part of life. He says, and this part kind of sounds a little hard. He says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, every conservative Bible scholar that I read, especially those who were gifted in Hebrew and the language of the Bible, will tell you, that the context of the verse that's being talked about here is talking about war. It's not talking about you just going out and, well, it's time to kill, bang. And now it's the time for you to heal. That's not, what, that's not at all what it's talking about. It's talking about there are times for a just war. There are times when you have to take a stand. After you negotiate, after you use all diplomatic channels, after you do everything under the sun to not compromise your position, but to deal with an antagonist, if that's over, you go to war. And when you go to war, you go to war for one reason, to annihilate the enemy, to win. Win. It's not a police action. You're not keeping the peace. You're winning. You've done everything you can to say that we don't want to do this. But when you fight, you fight to win. We're in that time today. We're in a fight with militant Muslim terrorists who want to change how you live your life. In fact, they're wanting to take the world back to about the third century. And their God is not our God. Now, I don't have time to get in all that this morning. So you do everything you can to negotiate. You do everything that you can to win them to faith in Christ. But when they start cutting off heads, you fight. And you fight to win. Because a civilized people cannot coexist with that. Period. Amen? For those of you who didn't say amen, God bless you. Again, it's polar opposites. There's a time for that. Thank goodness it's not all the time. And then there's a time to be at peace, a time to heal, a time to work on things, a time to regroup. So, again, he's showing the panorama of his life. There was a time he went to war. There was other times he was not at war. And there was an appointed time for each of those. And then, fourthly, he goes into one that I want to spend just a moment on this morning because I believe it has great application to us today. He says there's a time to break down. The New American Standard says tear down and a time to build. 
The implication and order him seems to indicate that the teardown in order to build precedes the building. In fact, if you go back to the earlier illustration of the agrarian illustration, what do you have to do in order to have the new crop? You have to tear up, pluck up, uproot in order for the new crop to come about. I believe the same is true here. And I believe that because of a principle. God wastes nothing, period. Those of you who can remember back that far, a few weeks ago, I preached a message on the feeding of the 5,000. Anybody remember that? Susan remembered it. Thank you, Susan. God bless you. If you remember the story, Jesus takes a, a lad's lunch and feeds 5, 10, 15,000 people, ever how many were there? 5,000 men, how many women and children? When it's over, he instructed them to take up the 12 baskets of fragments that were left over. They didn't lose it. In fact, one of the great illustrations here is each of the men who was serving got a full basket. And when they started with a small, small lunch, God not only multiplies, God blesses. But the point that I want to make out of that story is nothing was wasted. They didn't leave it out there on the hillside for the birds. There was no waste. God doesn't waste anything. God is in the salvage business. He salvaged my life. He salvaged your life. And he wants to put it to use. I started thinking about that in light of where we are today and the vote that we just took. I don't know how the vote's going to turn out. I pray it's positive. But I'm thinking, Glenn, you need to make practical application of God's word to God's people. And so I began to think about this. These buildings. These buildings that have housed ministry for many, many years. They were built for the glory of God. And they have served that purpose. They have, God has blessed in untold ways. This church is known around the world. These buildings have been modernized from time to time. These big buildings have been reconfigured from time to time. These buildings have been updated from time to time because we didn't want to waste but there comes a point, there comes a point when that is no longer an option. There comes a point when you have to make a decision with regard to the future. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to speak to you as clearly as I know how. No church stays on the plateau. A church will either grow and glow or it'll dry and die but we don't stay here. This church has been plateaued. I'm just telling you, we've been plateaued. You saw that. I'm not telling you something you don't know. And you began to make steps years ago to change the direction of this church. And part of that was to change not only what we did here, but where we did what we did here. And plans were made to move, relocate, out into the center of one of the fastest growing areas in the country. We didn't know it then. We know it now. Right in the middle. And so we decided to do that. 
And we get to a particular point in time when what are we going to do with this in order to go there? I've been in meetings here where we, it was a little bit of a struggle because who wants to buy this? Nothing against you. Please don't, don't, don't get your feelings hurt. But who wants to buy this? It's not useful for much of anything but a church. And so we begin to think about that and, and the age and all the other things that go in with it, it's going to take a lot of money to take it down. So who wants to spend X number of dollars to buy something, to spend X number of dollars to tear it down? Because honestly, they're buying the dirt. They're buying the location. They're not buying this. Lord, we need to pray about this. Ding! Before we could even pray good, we have an offer. I mean, I was getting ready to pray. And the Lord outran me in the prayer. And somebody says, we'll give you $2 million for it. What? $2 million? $2 million? And our, our, our men did some study on that. That's a wonderful, wonderful offer. Came out of the blue, so to speak. Everything that's been happening here lately has come out of the blue, so to speak. So I began to think about it. God wastes nothing. So the money that we will get from here is going to be redirected out there. We tear down in order to build up. It's kind of like somebody knew what they were talking about in the book. In fact, you've already voted for the first building. What this money will go for is the second building, which will accelerate us being fully operational out on that campus. We were already thinking about how we were, and then there still may be some transition time. Please don't take this this holistic. There still may be some time we have to make some adjustments. But we were thinking about what are we going to do in between the two times? And God sells the building to cut down on the time to build the other building. We're talking about how long can we stay here? God says, I want you to get out there. How long do you have to wait? What do you have to see, Glenn? The building sold. Get out there. Get in the middle of those folks and love them to Jesus. I'm like, Lord, you've got to understand we've got to have a schedule. <clears throat> Lord, we need some charts. And being good Baptists, we've got to have a few more meetings. And folks, I'm not discounting all of those things in their place. They're needed for us to do things decently and in order. But I'm just telling you, God is moving at lightning speed in this church. And God is providing things before we even get to the point of needing them. You got to tear down in order to build up. I know somebody sitting there saying, well, Brother Owens, you can say that because you're not even a member here. You don't have great attraction to these buildings. And I know many of you have marvelous memories and these buildings hold special, special feelings to you. 
I understand that. But folks, you got to remember, I go a long way back with this church. You say, well, Brother Owens, okay, you were here five years ago, six years ago as interim. No, no, no. I first preached in this church May 17, 1992. That's 25 years ago. And because of where I was with the state convention, I watched this church and knew about this church. I've been a friend with Brother Bobby before I even came to Florida. I don't know the church like you know the church, but don't tell me I don't know this church. I do know this church. And I've seen enough churches who don't do what you're doing and they're dead. God bless you for getting ahead of the curve. God bless you for moving out. Now, in summary, some atheists use the book of Ecclesiastes to bolster their empty belief because of all is emptiness, a form of fatalism. But I want you to understand that the book, while it does paint a dark picture of life without God, the book has a great ending to it. Look over, if you will, at the very end. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Here's the wisest man who ever lived. At the end of his life, he looks over his life, and this is what he says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. That's a pretty, pretty good ending, don't you think? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now look at the next phrase. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This is Old Testament language of a believer, one who reverences God. Now, this is Old Testament. But here's a man who fears God, and here's a man who keeps the Ten Commandments. That's the basis. That's the basis. And if you look back in chapter 1, verse 11, Excuse me, chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, hath made everything beautiful in his time. In his time. What time is it? First Baptist Church, Daytona Beach. Well, don't even look. It's 1144. I got one minute to close. I'm not talking about that time. I'm talking about that time. God says, I will judge. I will judge. Your duty is to fear God and keep the commandments. That's going to bring holistic meaning to life. And I will judge. For there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, there's a time to pluck up that which is planted. And there's a time to tear down. And there's a time to build up. What time is it, church? I believe we're in the midst of tearing down. 
and building up so that what comes after, according to, is beautiful. It's beautiful. We are in the midst of some of the most exciting days I know of in any church in Florida. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, enjoy life. Enjoy life. It's a gift of God. I told you a minute ago, that's a gift. Enjoy life. But you folks have the privilege to enjoy your church life like very few. I don't know of many churches who have the opportunity for you to see and experience what God is doing in a dramatic fashion like it's happening here. Enjoy that. Don't go, oh, no, we got to have another vote. Oh, no, we got to have a meeting. Oh, no, we got to have another committee. Oh, no. Enjoy it because I'm telling you, there are a lot of churches that would give anything if they were faced with what you're faced with, and that's moving ahead. Some are dying, and they don't even know they're dying, and they don't even know why they're dying. You've corrected it. You're in the midst of moving forward. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. And I'm just going to tell you, when it's all over, <laughs> it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be, I'm not talking about the buildings. They're going to be nice, but I'm talking about what we feel in our heart about what we have been a part of as God has led us to know what time it was and then to act on it. That is beautiful. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the preacher. I'm so sorry he went through his life like he did, but I'm so grateful for the conclusion of his life. He got it right. And Lord, in a sense, his struggle through life has been a help to us as we live our life, putting proper things in perspective. And today, Lord, I pray that we'll understand that part of life is to move ahead. We don't stay where we were. And part of life means to tear down some things in order to build up some more things. So Lord, I pray today, your church has acted upon the impulse of their heart and done what you want done. If there's one here today who's never trusted Christ, I pray today would be the day they understand Jesus Christ is not a good way to heaven. Jesus Christ is not even the best way to heaven. According to Acts 4.12, He is the only way to heaven. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is an exclusivity to who Jesus Christ is. God had one Son, and it's through that one Son that blood redemption was offered. I pray today, if there's somebody here who's struggling with unconfessed, unrepented of sin, that first time that they would come today, to receive forgiveness. Maybe there are others here who are Christians and they're suffering for some things in their life that are not right. They've gotten away from God. Maybe there's a sense of apathy. I pray today they would come back and claim the promises of 1 John 1, 9 that if they confess their sins, you're faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Maybe there are those here who are searching for a church home. I pray your spirit would tell them they're home. This is home. Come and join us and help us to be strong as we make these next months of moves and decisions and, and finally as we relocate. 
Lord, any decision today that will bring honor and glory to Christ, I thank you for it, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. He is a good, good father. He is a good, good father. This is our invitation hymn. It's simply what it sounds like. We're inviting you to respond to that which God has said to you today. The altar here is open if you need to come and just pray. Trained counselors will be here to greet you if you want someone to pray with or if you want to talk about a decision, something that's on you, and maybe you don't even fully understand what it is. Come and let these men help you to know what it might be that God's dealing with in your life. This is the time of decision. The ball's in your court. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? That's the question. We're standing. We're singing now.